writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the Right Pack. Welcome back to Right Pack Radio. This is your host, David Allen Lucas, author of Science Fiction, Mystery, Horror, Poetry, and announcing that I have just been promoted to fourth degree black belt. Hey! <laughs> and uh, with me today is... Hi, I'm Melanie Colini. I write uh, science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction. My name is Jennifer Stolzer. I'm an illustrator, and I write fantasy. My name is Meredith Tate. I write speculative YA and new adult. I'm Peter Green, and I write uh, uh, World War II biography and uh, mystery. And today we're going to talk about probably one of the most difficult things all writers, all new writers especially, have to figure out. How to filter out all the writing advice. Mm -hmm. Years ago, before the internet, yes, life existed, civilization was somehow formed without it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a pain to make fire. Oh, it was a pain to make fire. (laughs) Anyway, no, on the serious side. Before the internet, there was just sources of information on writing. How to write. What should you write? How to get published. How many words are supposed to be in a book? What's the best place to try to get try to learn information and so forth? Then the internet blew up, and the information out there got expansive beyond belief. Some of this information is great. Some of this information makes great um, food for your garden, shall we say? <laughs> but how do you weed through it all? No pun intended. How do you weed through it all and figure out? What works? What doesn't work? What should you listen to? Including, should you even listen to some of our advice? And where do you go? And what do you do next? So with that, I'm going to throw out to the group, where has been some of your worst writing advice come from? Twitter. 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 Why Twitter? Because anybody can can post whatever they want. So, I mean, if you just take any advice you see on Twitter, you don't know what that person's written, if they've had anything published, like what their education is. You don't know any anything like that. I feel like we can also with blogs, too. Same mm-hmm. same thing. And a lot, a lot of times, we've I don't know if we talked about this in a Right Pack radio um, episode or if we talked about this afterwards. Hmm. But oh, I think we did. In the blog, to, to blog or not to blog. Most new writers, when they blog, they're blogging to other writers, because this is what we know. Mm-hmm. Of course, you attract other writers to your site rather than other readers, but, you know, it's a question. Do they know? Okay, the cops are coming to arrest us. We have that. broken the Information Act or something. I'm, I'm just hoping that the uh, microphone picks that up so we don't suddenly sound like we're crazy people. <laughs> yeah, well. There was a siren. There's lots, lots of sirens outside. Sirens. Kind of sounded more like a fire, fire engine than yeah. police. The fire department's just like right right down the street. So. And so is the police, though. But yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, Welcome to Kirkwood. 
Anyway, so where else has been some places for bad advice? Well, some of my worst writing advice comes from myself because I tend to read all kinds of advice Mm -hmm. and take it all entirely too seriously. Uh, I'll read something about how dialogue really should be and then I'll try very hard to make it that way and strain or force what would naturally come out of my pen. So that's one of my big problems. Uh, And and even one time uh, an editor... uh, for the publisher that I had uh, until she died, sadly, uh, was the the editor for this publisher uh, had told me uh, there there was no suspense in in my story, uh, and which was a good critique. But then I I started turning around chapters and putting a different one at the beginning. Until my story was so contorted that, <laughs> frankly, uh, you know, the best advice I'm getting right now is, oh, well, why don't you start it this way? And I said, well, that's what I had in the first place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes your initial instinct is the best one, by the way. That's a good piece of advice. Oh. Uh, I was going to uh, going to agree that generally I'm pretty frightened of of official writing how-tos. Like, I know that some people really enjoy getting books about how to write and writing strategies and and things like that. Our own Kathleen, who's not here today, is pretty addicted to those books. She loves Mm -hmm. those books, and they really help her focus and motivate herself. But I get so wrapped up in the rules and rule following that if I got one of those books... I do this all the time. You know, I've been working on my novel for 10 years, but I read a paragraph of one of those books and suddenly it's all done wrong. And i got to redo all of it, and I freak out, and I blow it way out of proportion. So I, I don't really get into those. Um, I've heard something, I think it was referred to in focus groups, but this would apply to writing too, is your focus group is great at, or your customers or readers mm-hmm. are great at identifying problems, but not necessarily solutions. So if they read something and they're confused, well, they're legitimately confused, so there might be something you need to change. But what they suggest to be changed may or may not be what you actually want to change. Uh-huh. True. I'm remembering back to when we did Writers in the Park and the episode on worry, regret, and rejection. One of the audience spoke up and said that one of the things that she had learned is when a writer who's giving writing advice, be it at a conference, I'm going to say also in magazines and books and blogs and so forth, and they're talking about how they made it. It's how they wrote and uh-huh. how they made it. This is an art. It, it changes. There's certain rules that do have to exist and certain rules you do have to follow, but then... Also, too, it's supposed to be fun, and you're supposed to learn on your own, and we all have our own way of writing and our own styles. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Um, I think what I was thinking of is an example of how subjective writing advice can be and how you need to make it work for you is that, for me, one of my biggest pet peeves is dialogue tags coming before the dialogue. So (laughs) something like, I looked him square in the face and said, get away from me, or something, as opposed to, get away from me, I said. That's something that really bothers me. So if someone was going to hear writing advice from me, I might say, put your dialogue tag at the end of the sentence. But that being said, I've recently read a number of New York Times best-selling books where they put dialogue tags before the dialogue. So it shows that even if you listen to advice, you still need to do 
what works best for you, your book, your writing, your style, and right. what works for one person might not work for everybody. I, I was just rereading a one, and um, there's this old advice that is generally good. It's, you know, show, don't tell, and don't be repetitive. Uh-huh. But all through this book, she is repetitive. Um, and the thing is, it's part of her style, and it's meant to be funny, and it is funny. But I think she's self-consciously doing it, but if you just read it in the rules, it is so totally against the rules. This is a great time to bring up a parallel to the art world. You know, I'm drawing a picture as we speak. As you always do. As I always do, as I'm kind of addicted to my chosen career. Uh, but you, you're you taught in school how to draw correctly, but you have to learn the rules before you can break the rules. True. So, abstract artists, very famous people who do whatever they want, they all they learned the rules first. And then having that basic foundation of art skills you know this is how you draw in pencil this is how you paint realistically this is the proportion of a human face this is the anatomy of a human body those things are in their brains and then they make the conscious decision stylistically to break those rules i think that has a lot to do with writing as well you know all the rules for writing but if I'm going to write a first-person novel from the point of view of an eight-year-old, they might not follow all those rules, and I would make that decision stylistically to best suit the tone of the book. Certainly. And if I'm going to, I'm going to also borrow a parallel. And I'm, I, I'm laughing that you chose that way, because that was that's perfect. <laughs> um, and I can't draw, so I, I'm going to rely on a little bit of something that Stephen King talks about in On Writing. His book is awesome. His book is awesome. Absolutely. Not that you have to follow all his rules. (laughs) His book is awesome because it's not just about rules, it's about his method. Right, exactly. And one of his methods, one of the things he talks about is creating a writer's toolbox. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how, oh, sorry, Stephen, if you are listening to this, I probably screwed this up. I think it was your dad or your grandfather or somebody who went to go fix a screen door, and he carried along his entire toolbox. Mm-hmm. And he asked him, well, why are you doing that? Oh, you need it with a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, yeah, I just need a screwdriver, but you never know when I need the rest of the tools. Mm-hmm. As we're learning to write, we kind of are building our own toolboxes. We have our grammar. We have what we learn in, if you took any classes in college, high school, any conferences, any books and magazines you read, on writing, it all goes in that toolbox. But one of the interesting things that goes in that toolbox is the choice of what tools you choose. If you are a <clears throat> if you're a handyman at home, you may choose to have craftsman's tools versus I have no idea some other <laughs> manufacturer, but Walmart brand tools. Walmart brand tools, whatever. Which might be craftsman. Yeah. <laughs> Remember. Versus the David Lucas tools. How's that? There we um, go. Because David Lucas' tools suck, whereas the craftsmen are great, and they can take a beating. You know, the if the handyman, the carpenter, the mechanic spends a lot of money, buco amount of money, on how, what tools they choose. And I think we as writers go through our lives picking the tools we use to determine what we write, or how we write, and what rules we follow. So, what are some of the toolbox? Some of the tools. If I was, if you had a writing toolbox in front of you, where are some of the toolboxes? Are some of the tools that you would have? 
Are we talking like methods and choices? Or are we talking like style things that we like to pull out? C, all the above. Okay. One thing that I heard that was really helpful from my writing is to eliminate the word that. Oh. That, yes. In a lot yes. of places. It and just as whenever you can. Yeah. <laughs> or which. Which is a perfectly good uh, word. But which which, which do you use? <laughs> you know, which is which? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but so often people don't know which one to use. Which, which. Yeah. <laughs> but knowing basic grammar rules and, yeah. you know, knowing... I actually liked diagramming sentences. Yes. And frankly, even today, I'm trying to figure out if something's a run-on sentence or not. I diagram as like, okay, this is the noun, this is the verb, this, <laughs> these prepositions all go off. I, use, I learned a different method than they're teaching today. We didn't make the trees. We circled things and whatever. But mm-hmm. point is... Today, even, I still use some of the components to try and figure out if I have a sentence grammatically correct. Okay, so strunk and white is a good tool. Number one. I yeah. love that one. Hmm. I was just thinking, I read on a, a pretty big agent's blog recently that she had posted that she expects a lot of sentences to be between 10 and 15 words, which I think is a good guide. But that being said, there are going to be some sentences that are longer and some that are shorter. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if I'm trying to look at one of my sentences and see kind of if it's too long or too short, I use that as a basic guide. Not that it works for all of them. Yeah. But and if you've yeah. got a sentence that's as long as a paragraph, you ought to really yeah. think about it. I was a yeah. king of that in junior high. <laughs> yeah, me too. And then, and then I want to come back to so say something. So after you, Jen. Oh, um, one of my... I, I hate the passive voice. I know a lot of people hate the passive voice. Uh, I like the zombie rule. If you can put by zombies at the end of your sentence, it's passive. Um, my, um, my, I had her for sophomore year and senior year of English teachers had a rule that uh, she threatened to disallow the verb be completely. Huh. She allowed us to have two or three in the paper. But the point is, not all be verbs are passive, but it is hard to make a passive sentence without using a be verb. And uh-huh. be is be, was, uh, be, was, is. Hmm. Uh, you know, so if it doesn't have... Have, had, has. Those, what yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the things I do is I look up styles of... I look at style guides. And style guides, what I mean by that are you can look up... Um, the Associated Press has their own style guide. The BBC has their own style guide. The Reuters has their own style guide. Hemingway used to follow the Kansas City Stars style guide. Mm. And there's a, the style guide of that time period, if you actually Google Hemingway st- um, style guide or Kansas City Star style guide and Hemingway in the name, it will pull it up. And it's, I think it's a pretty good one hmm. to use. Um, another piece of advice that's helped me a lot is um, eliminating words like hear, see, felt, like for example, if it's told in first person, I heard bells chiming. Obviously, if the the eye is telling it, then obviously they hear it. You can just say bells chimed, Yeah, for example. Yeah. That works in uh, third person as well. As yeah. long as your main character sees it, you don't have to yeah. say that they saw it. We and, assume and that they know because it's there. You're the main, you know, they're the main character. And, and the problem with, with adding those words, like he felt... Uh, this or uh, he he heard uh, is that it throws you out of the story mm-hmm. because you're already supposed to be looking at things from either if you're in first person or in third person close uh, you're already looking at it from one uh, individual's point of view and uh, 
so uh, a siren. Uh, uh, we hear know, a, a police siren. <laughs> you know, I say I, he heard a police siren. Uh, a siren interrupted his thought. Mm -hmm. But no, we're talking about advice now, but another issue is, okay, when do we follow the advice, when do we not? And the style guide is an interesting idea to, to conceptual it, conceptualize it. So I think one of the big things for knowing what advice to follow is who is your audience. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, for yes. instance, if you are writing for a newspaper, you better be following the style guide of the newspaper you're trying to get it published in. Yeah, they're not going to forgive you for ignoring the rules that they basically told you to use. Right. But that's a, you know, if you were in a class, you better be following the rules your professor teacher is expecting you to do. Similarly, if you're writing for, like, a middle grade book, it's probably going to have a very different style than writing an adult book. You'd better because yeah. getting the middle grade tone and voice is mm -hmm. actually a really big stickler for for agents who rep middle grade. They have a hard time finding people who can oh. capture that properly. I, I totally agree, and I'm going to actually pull us away from style, mm -hmm. and let's talk about how do you get. <laughs> I just got two thumbs up over here, or eight thumbs up from Meredith about one of the things I want to talk about, which is how do you describe things differently. And just saying, he spat. He spat? He spat. Or he's mad. Or he's... <laughs> Jennifer drew angrily. It's kind of showing. Like, what does someone look like when they're angry? Do their cheeks flush? Do their eyes narrow? Something like mm -hmm. that. Is the, you feel that a lot more so than just show, saying don't tell. angry. Show, yeah, don't exactly. tell. And one of the... There's two authors out there who they have a website that they have not taken down. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's called the Bookshelf Muse, and they've got a new website up. But they've also published some books that are thesauruses, and they are Angela Ackerman and Becca. Becca, please forgive me because I'm going to mispronounce your name. Puglisi, P-U-G-L-I-S-I. They've written the Negative Trait Thesaurus. And they've written um, some personality ones. The Emotion Thesaurus, the emotion which is a lifesaver. I highly recommend it to anyone writing. <laughs> yep. The Positive Trait Thesaurus is another one. Um, let me just use an example. I'm trying to get my nook. Oh, of course, Kendall just crashed. <laughs> Sorry, Kendall. Um, anyway. Amazon. I was, I was going to try to get to an example here. I'm still going to attempt it. And by the way, just for the record, I do, I'm not actually holding an Amazon Fire or Kindle Fire or anything like that. I am holding my cell phone with the application. Because so I, this is an app critique, not an a device critique. Well, the book itself, the Emotion Thesaurus, will have like, I think there's like a hundred emotions in there. Like and that. then how to describe it, words to describe it, what your body does inside, what you look like on the outside. And it's, it's really great for showing different ways to show the emotion rather than tell it. Yep, and so in this case here, as I'm paging through a lot to get to what I want to do, they're talking about how do you make a flawed character, where's it coming out, and so forth. But uh, da, 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 da. but anyway, that's another right. example of uh, another good toolbox option to have. Um, oh, another toolbox option while Dave's getting that is uh, books that you like and... Not even necessarily in your style, 
but books basically books by authors that you kind of want to be your inspiration so you know you might not actually want to write a Hemingway style book but he might be your inspiration so you know reading books like him and like how does he solve those problems in other words you have to be your own uh, your own critic and 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 know how to take advice and and know what to accept by using guides uh, mm -hmm. style guides by uh, using models from authors you admire and whose style you like and uh, developing your own vision and direction That's you know I think what a lot of people have trouble with especially when they get going is what oh, again figuring out when they can break what they've been told as a rule because yeah. people's what they're told is conflicting a lot could I yeah okay now just, since I've got this real fast um, here's an example how do you show somebody being honorable uh, as soon as I say your character's honorable some of us have different opinions right away we can all picture different things some ways of doing it show his loyalty speak have him always speak the truth when asked standing up for others or for one's own beliefs even when it's unpopular you can show him treating people even opponents with respect and fairness showing graciousness I'm just picking out a few things here having good manners stuff like that so in other words you get a situation you know to say the, the honorable Jennifer Stozer walked into the room I did yes you no. did you can have more of you've got a dinner conversation between Jennifer and Meredith and the way Jennifer acts displays the honorable aspect to her character rather than pointing it out now I've, I've seen authors actually use that to build irony Namely, they come out and say they're one way and then show them behaving another way. Mm. Say that it's the Honorable Mr. Smith, but have Mr. Smith be behaving dishonorably. You know. The Honorable Judge Peter Lucas, I'm picking us, showing up at a strip bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. That sounds like a comedic tone. That was. Anyway. Some other places, or rather, what are some other things that would be in your toolbox? Those thesauruses are in mine. So it's a regular thesaurus, a dictionary, science dictionary. Oh yeah, research material definitely. Yes, my Google, research material. Google's in my school. In Google, my, Wikipedia, my a great place to begin your research, a terrible place to end your research. <laughs> yeah. Granted, yes. Baby name books. Baby name books. Baby name books are great. Oh, speaking of that. Baby name books, just because they have a definition of the name, doesn't mean it's actually the definition of the name. So if you actually care about the definition, look for multiple sources. Yes. And I would also like to say, as a, I'm a licensed social worker, one of my biggest pet peeves in writing is seeing people um, misclassify mental illness. So I would highly recommend, if you're writing about a mentally ill character, to pick up a copy of, it's called the DSM-4. It's the DSM-5. Now, yeah. yeah. And um, there's all sorts of criteria. It's pretty easy to, to read of every single mental illness and identify symptoms and signs of it. So I, I recommend that to anyone. FYI, from what I understand, and from another psychologist, a friend of mine, or an M another MSW, actually, they've changed the way they categorize certain things in the DSM-5. Yeah, so I if haven't you want seen to be up the to 5 that, yet. Yeah. But, but um, speaking of that... I have a bachelor's in psychology, and I've taken abnormal psychology, but um, just so you know, the, it's great reference, 
But if you actually want, for instance, your main character to have a specific mm -hmm. condition, I would suggest further reading, maybe get a first-person account by someone yep. with the illness or, you know, some popular literature. Autobiographies are great. For Autobiographies right. or maybe a biography, like the equivalent of Scientific America type thing written for the general audience because just the symptoms doesn't really give you an idea of how they manifest yeah. necessarily. Or even blogs by people who have the condition. Yeah. And speaking from people, you know, I know everyone around the table has someone they know or, or they've heard a story of someone who has Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a list of symptoms, it doesn't mean that every case follows that list to the letter. Exactly. Every case is very different. Yeah, and uh, when you compare notes between mm -hmm. two people, you know that your experience may differ wildly from the other, even though it's the same diagnosis. Yeah, a typical diagnosis like has a list of 10 or 12 symptoms, and if you have like six of them, you have the disorder. But guess what? There's a whole lot of permutations in there. Now, it, would someone like to explain what DSM stands for in case someone listening? The Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And I actually Ooh. just pulled up. I, the, the biggest mental illness I see misqualified is bipolar disorder. A great memoir is called An Unquiet Mind, a memoir of moods and madness by Kay Redfield Jameson. It's great for understanding bipolar disorder for writing about a character. with. Oh, and just so you know, there's two types of bipolar disorder and they look very different. <laughs> yep. I've had relatives with both. So please, if you're <laughs> writing about that, do your research first. Yeah. Yeah. What's the yes. name of that book again? It's called An Unquiet Mind. Mm -hmm. Right, so we weren't really talking about uh, mental illnesses, mental illnesses but it was, good in, no, no, it was good information for everyone now. So. No, and it's good to have information that's in a category that maybe you're dealing with, in a, if you're dealing with it in multiple stories to have in your toolbox. Um, I won't talk about some of the police ones I do, but our private investigations and so forth. But one thing I am going to go to, another thing that's in a my writing toolbox from the beginning has been three magazines. The Writer, Writer's Digest, mm -hmm. and Poets and Writers. And I may not, sorry guys, I may not always subscribe to you, but I am always looking at your websites, <laughs> reading your articles, or reading your magazines in the libraries. We forgive you, David. Thank you. <laughs> Another one, too, you might want to add to that list, but it's from a different angle, is Publishers Weekly. And I'm going to tell you, to get a subscription to that is expensive. So let your local library, yeah. <laughs> who probably has the subscription already, subscribe to it and then just go down and read that on a weekly, monthly, or whatever basis. And a, a lot of um, authors who have, have been had... Um, best-selling books seem to put writing advice of their own on their website. Again, take it with a grain of salt, whatever it is, but a lot of them seem to post that on their own blogs. Mm -hmm. um, is it okay if we switch to the next Please. topic, yeah. Ledger? Uh, how, what to do when you get advice that you don't know if it's quite the proper advice to follow? Often this kind of advice comes from people that, you know, I've received this kind of advice from people that I really respect. And it's like you want to you want to make sure that you make the mm -hmm. right decision, even if the writer that is giving you advice is like your professor and mm -hmm. you've been trained to think that they're right in everything that they say. They may not be for your particular story. Right. They might be, as a martial arts friend of mine will say, blowing bubbles out their butt. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't say that to my professor. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say it to my oh. professor either, but still, yeah. before you go, let me say one thing real fast. Mm -hmm. To answer your question, at least one thing I do is I have a filter. Of mm -hmm. all, for all advice. Even advice coming out of my own mouth. So I'm going to say that right off the bat. Yeah. 
And I've got another filter that's being applied, so know that my real filter is not as polite as what I'm about to say. <laughs> Opinions are like what we are sitting on. <laughs> they all, everyone's got one, and they all stink. Mm. You were going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, um, when evaluating device, this isn't, anyone can give you good advice and anyone can give you bad advice, but one of the first things to try and start evaluating device for me is to figure out... Basically, how qualified is your source? Is your source, for instance, if it's a book, is it the type of person that you're writing for? Is it someone that knows what they're doing? You know, have they gotten books published in your genre? Um, I mean, that's, but that can only be the first filter because, frankly, like I said before, um, people are great at identifying problems. They're not necessarily great at finding solutions. <laughs> One of the interesting things about writing and writing advice, the good and the bad on the advice, is that times have changed writing advice. And let me use an example. Back when I started started my writing career, it was pre-internet. Um, it's that pre, uh, or rather, internet was around, but it wasn't popular yet. Hmm. Um, Only science geeks were using it. Yes. Anyway, and your main gatekeeper to get your name out there, to get your audience built, was to get published in short story magazines. That was the way everybody got going, at least the vast majority did. So I asked a very well-known published author whose name I don't want to give out because I don't, I'm not going to put him on the spot. Mm -hmm. And when I say well-known, he's had books made into movies, he's internationally published, he is considered a legend in his field. Okay, I think I know who you're talking about now, but just a guess. No, that's all right. Uh, no, even if you even if you do know, don't yeah. don't say. Um, but I asked him point blank at a writing event what his if that advice was still something that be should be followed, or is it now not as tried and true? And he said, really, is it not that not that an author shouldn't be trying to get published himself in short stories, but the short story publishers have shrunk considerably and that nowadays with the way things have happened you don't have to go that route anymore there's other routes open to you mm -hmm. so this advice which used to be sage for decades and uh, I dare say generations mm -hmm. has changed yes uh, another thing too uh, as far as evaluating advice is how often do you hear a particular critique of your work mm -hmm. um you know, if you hear, oh, somebody doesn't like your main character. I do not like your main character. Well, is that because that person doesn't like too many people in the first place? <laughs> or is it because there's something wrong with your main character? <laughs> and maybe, you know, your main character should have some unlikable qualities uh, that rub this person the wrong way. <laughs> but maybe balance out the character along with his noble qualities or his lovable qualities. And if you're going to make a broken character, you're going to have traits that people don't like. Mm -hmm. Sure. I uh, remember a psychology experiment, and this, I don't remember the last time it's been done, but I think it's probably been repeated. But you give, these are college students, a choice between taking home two posters, a poster of a fluffy kitten or a picture of abstract art. They can choose whichever they want. In one case, one group, they just choose whatever they want and go. The other group, they have to say why, which one they like and why. 
So when they just whichever one they wanted and go, more people chose the abstract art. When they chose to have to explain it, more people chose the kittens. The thing was, in six months they called them, and in six months more people liked their abstract art, and the people that got the kittens mostly didn't like it, wasn't you know hung up anymore. So the idea is, people's visceral reactions might be correct, but if you tell ask them why, all of a sudden they, their ideas might be simpler and more formulaic. So it's just a rule of thumb to follow. I recall, I don't remember who it was, I wish I did, because I would credit them with saying it, but someone uh, told me concerning critiques and critique groups or whatever, maybe it was someone at this table, I have no idea, (laughs) my brain is not working properly, but um, that when you're in a critique group and you give advice, you're almost happier when the other person takes that advice and comes up with something different. It doesn't right. necessarily take exactly what you said and redo it, but takes what you said, considers what you said, finds the kernel of truth down there in the depth, deep part of it, and then uses that for the edit. And going off of what, of what Jen said, I think also it's important to keep in mind is that you don't ever have to take any of that advice. You only take what works for you, but that being said, maybe if one person's says they don't relate to your main character that's one thing and definitely listen to it and think about maybe why but maybe if four beta readers say that then maybe that's something you might want to at least think uh, just about make sure they're the right yes, beta readers exactly. make sure they're actually the audience for your book if you're writing a YA and all the teenagers tell you that this teenage character does not read like a teenager then maybe you should listen to their advice. You hear, hear it often enough. Now, on the other hand, if, if they're all the parents of teenagers, yeah. then maybe they just are a generation. Yes. <laughs> oh, then just one more, one more thing is that another advice that someone told me was not to put any profanity in your books, and I thought about it, but a lot of my characters do sometimes swear, but when I think of real people, I, a lot of people I know sometimes swear. Uh-huh. So, I mean, uh-huh. I think it, maybe that didn't work for their style, but then maybe for me it works for mine. I think that's also something. You know, with profanity, and there are some things, and I don't know if it's profanity per se, but again, that comes back to marketing. Mm -hmm. So there, you might also want to get, in addition to your readers, advice of someone that actually has some experience getting things published. Mm -hmm. Because maybe the publishers don't want to publish things with profanity because then that gets them the wrong type of publicity. If your middle grade has profanity, you might need to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting that you said that is there are librarians I know and if anyone's listening, they, who is a librarian, probably would nod their heads very quickly. They will get books back that had profanity in it that has now suddenly been scratched out by some other reader because they're like, these people shouldn't profane. But yet, especially with why I write, which is crime, I'm sorry, you're not going to get a murderer, rapist, general bad guy going, oh, jolly gosh, I really shouldn't. You're such a horrid person. Fiddlesticks. Fiddlesticks. A lot of that just depends on your style, because Uh I don't routinely use swear words, even when I'm not being recorded, so I just don't think that way, so my dialogue doesn't come out that way. Right. Yeah. So Usually. Sometimes, because you are writing different people. Yes. Everyone's got a kernel of you in them mm-hmm. when you're writing characters, you know, out of your heart, but mm-hmm. they are different than yes. you are. So back to filtering out the advice. One of the things that, to put forward in your filter, I don't care if you go to college classes, you go to writing seminars or what, realize that everybody's, everybody who is writing, okay, 
is writing for a reason. They may have a different goal than your goal. They may be aiming their writing at a different source than what you're aiming it at. If you realize that, you're able to take their advice and either use it, because it might be great advice, or you can take it and throw it out, th- throw in the trash can, because while it might be great advice for what they're doing, mm-hmm. it's not great advice for you. As an example, somebody might be focused more on being a journalist mm-hmm. than being a fiction writer. Someone might be focused more on screenplay writing than they are on novel writing or vice versa. And yes, people, there are separate styles of writing between the different medias. Short stories, novels, very different styles. Oh, huge. Huge difference. Yeah, and you know you can, you got to listen carefully to advice because your first reaction to it is, oh, this person hates me. <laughs> you know, and, and that's not... If the critic is serious and constructive, that's not the point of his or her saying it. Mm-hmm. The, the point is there's something that could be fixed. You're fine. Maybe your book is fine, but there's something that could be fixed. Mm-hmm. Or improved listen, upon. Or improved upon. And, and listen carefully because maybe some of the... I'm very protective about parts I've written and felt strongly about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really don't change them. But maybe something they've said... Oh, I can use this chapter, but whoa, I've got to change it around to fix these things uh-huh. that this critic has said uh, are wrong with it. Another thing, too, along with that, sometimes, and that's advice you were handed on particular work you did. Sure. If you're, in, and I'm looking more at in the case of a lecture, so here, perfect example, different points of view of aim of what we're talking about hmm. that I just said a moment ago. Here, I'm picturing in, like you're in a lecture hall. Well, just because, okay, I can get away with this since he's passed on. Just because Isaac Absinoff said it here at the podium as I was sitting there, it must be right. I must be doing it wrong. And probably if Absinoff said it, you probably are doing it wrong. But in, in all honesty. But he hasn't read your work. and He hasn't and, read your work. And he doesn't decided, know what you're doing. You know, he, he's talking in very general terms. Right. And it may not apply to you. He said, oh, exactly. Lucas, you're fine. Don't worry about what I, I said. I heard Ray Bradbury talk. And the funny thing is, of, of four science fiction writers, he was the most stuck to his own point of view and the least able to see other people's points of view of any science fiction writer I've ever heard speak. <laughs> and it was interesting. Which is, which is and fine. he really annoyed me. But he was interesting. He's into his vision. He was, and he, he's de- since deceased. I'm but, totally uh, jealous you got to see Ray Bradbury. He, he came to wash you when I was there. Oh. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, I'm just officially jealous, but yeah. moving on. Yes. It was open to the public. You could have come. <laughs> Rub it in that. even further. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Not only did you miss it, but you missed it and you had no good excuse. <laughs> yeah. And what well, you're not, and what you're not seeing hours. is me strangling <laughs> Melanie right now. But anyway. <laughs> no, in all honesty. So what are some other um, filters that you use on figuring out what to follow, what not to follow? Well, um, we talked about considering your, you know, is your the critique coming from someone who would read your work mm-hmm. normally? Which is a good, you know, mm-hmm. one. Uh, is it someone who's telling you the truth, or are they like trying to tell you what you want to hear? That's something, perhaps. Well, yeah. So bad advice can be both negative and positive. Yeah. Yes, most certainly. 
Okay, um, also, too, um, I'm sorry, my mind just got distracted real fast here. Oh, do you generally like what the other person likes? That's true. Yes. And do you like the other person's writing? Yeah. yeah Be- like, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, maybe even their personal beliefs, for example, too. Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, personal part of mine is my one of my manuscripts I had a line about um, a married gay couple and somebody I know told me to take that out but I know that their personal beliefs were that they were opposed to something like that and so mm-hmm. it's good to take into account somebody else's point of view oh yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Poli- the political social political thought yeah exactly yeah exactly <laughs> you know there's going to be one piece of advice which everyone's going to tell me of course you need to follow this right away and actually I find that this piece of advice is wrong in my case. Hmm. And it's going to be the piece of advice which every single writer who's listened to this broadcast and everyone sitting around the table has heard and probably has followed. Hmm. And that is, you need to write every day. Oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've put myself through guilt trips when, in my case, personal life, got a very demanding job and I take care of an elderly parent, which is just like having a kid but never grows up. Um, you know, it was very demanding on time. So there's been time in which I haven't had the ability to write. But one thing I've noticed is sometimes if I take a break, I don't constantly, guys, when I'm saying this, but sometimes when I take a break, my writing is better for not having kept on pushing it. And it's something also to have noticed in my martial arts. If I take a vacation, if you will, for a month, suddenly I come back and I'm a better fighter. Because uh, no. something's happened where I've stepped away from enough, my body's assimilated information. Yeah, my my first round of golf every year is is always terrific. <laughs> the gods of golf will give me one, but that's the last time <laughs> I play well. All year. Um, just going back to David, I noticed that you used the words you the, the advice that you need to write every day. It brought me back to a, a quote that one of my author friends said on Twitter, which is, "I'm always leery of advice that starts with." The writing advice that starts with you need to do this. The only thing you need to do is write, and I think that that's good advice. Yeah, that's, yes. that's good advice. Oh, and another kind of advice that uh, you should ignore is uh, uh, your mother's. Unless <laughs> <laughs> your mother, is, Unless a your mother is a really good critic. <laughs> if your mom is anything like mine, who does not read, last book she read was in the 1980s. Um, then, yeah, you definitely need not to listen to that advice. You know, you need other critics than uh-huh. uh, immediate family members because they're going to give you the benefit of every doubt and think you're the most wonderful writer that's ever come Some down the pike. are better or, than others at getting constructive criticism. Yeah, or to say, you should never have tried this. You're not worth anything, you know? I mean, that's the other side of that. But actually, my mom, I, I have dyslexia, but my mom was my typist all through high school. So we actually got pretty good at, you know, yeah. back and That forth. is true. When you have a working relationship, you kind of, you work through that whole, oh, honey, you're the best one ever. There's nothing that you've done that is wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mom actually said, okay, you need to shorten this up here, you know? Yeah. So, um, hmm. we're all just suddenly distracted by something I've got. But anyway, um, other advice I would be very leery of, and I run into this. I think Peter, Jen, you, Melanie, when you go to write to the St. Louis Writers Guild, yeah, we run into these people. And Meredith, I didn't include you because you haven't come yet, but I know you will be. 
Um, keep an yeah. eye out for these people. Yeah, keep an They're eye not going people. to drop any names, Should but you may afraid? you may find them in your encounters. Okay. Yeah, and you probably have encountered people like this. Is you go to an event that's for writers, and in walks people who either think that now they're retired they can write, or they know everything about writing, but they've never been able to get anything published. Mm-hmm. And you smile. You, you can. I hate to say it. You can see these people coming a mile away, <laughs> uh, but it's true. You smile. You nod. And I wouldn't necessarily disregard their advice right off the bat, but realize the source of that advice and go from there. So a lot of this has to do with evaluate your source when deciding yes. what to take it. But another thing would be figuring out what works for you. So for some of these, like writing every day, you might want to give that an honest try for a month or two months uh-huh. and then just see if that actually works or if you're just writing, you know, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy brown dog, you know? Yeah. But in one, one piece of that advice, and I'm going to go to Jen next year, mm-hmm. is the reason why writing every day, and I, I'm going to sound counter, is important is this is an art. You only improve your art by practice, just like mm-hmm. music, just mm-hmm. like painting, like sculpting and so forth. But yet, too, you can burn yourself out. Go ahead. Um, I was going to give an anonymous anecdote. Um, I love anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a conversation that I had not long ago with a fellow writer. I'll call her my critique partner. My critique partner who had received advice from a friend of hers. And this friend told her that I enjoyed your story, but I was unsatisfied with the ending. And because this was a friend, my critique partner took this advice very much to heart, even though this was the only person who had given her such a response. And we sat down and we talked about why do you think this person was, you know, felt that way? And, you know, we've talked about those strategies already, but more specifically, is it okay to disregard that piece of advice if you don't think it's right or is that a cop-out i don't want to change it so i'm gonna ignore that piece of advice and i told her over and over again did you give it its due diligence did you consider it did you think about why they were perhaps unsatisfied did you consider ways that you could change it and are these things that you think are right for your story and in the end she realized that while that was one person's opinion, and while she loved that person very much, uh, that piece of advice would not fit with the story she was trying to tell. They were unsatisfied because they, the story may perhaps didn't end the way they wanted it to, or their favorite character didn't get the best ending or something <laughs> like that. But for whatever reason, uh, the writer, you know, my critique partner, was satisfied with the ending as it was written. It did everything she wanted it to do, and other people had told her it was effective. So it was okay to disregard that piece of advice. Yeah, and it, Fair no, enough. another mm-hmm. thing is, you know, what what's the relative power dynamic for the person giving you the de- advice? For example, <laughs> if your professor is giving you the advice and it's for a class, then you probably want to take the advice even if you're pretty sure it's wrong. Because <laughs> your grade will be lower if you don't take the advice. You might want to keep the original version or do it a different way too for the next thing but for that class you know follow the professor now if it's going to be part of your permanent record or whatever else then that's a little bit you know your thesis follow the advice for as long as you have to then you can toss it on its ear yeah yeah you know uh, or as long as it it works 
an example from my architectural career. Uh, let's say your, your boss or your client says, I must have a colonial building. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and now in St. Louis, they often end up with a colonial building, and that's the end of the story. However, uh, let's say somebody has this vision, and then you examine the vision a little more closely, uh, and, and you think, well, I would do it this way, more contemporary, more uh, uh, abstract lines and volumes and, uh, and, and a, a different kind of composition which, which sells itself on visual terms rather than on familiar details the way a colonial building would. Uh, so uh, the clever architect, and this is, uh, is outlined in the Fountainhead, that classic uh, by Ayn Rand, uh, the clever architect will do what the client wants and show him, but he'll also do another alternate design, which follows uh, his own lights and his own instincts, but he followed the advice given by the client. And, and then, you know, I mean, since it's the client's building, you do whatever, but at least you've shown him what the what the op uh, what possibilities are there yeah this is your that's a great thing to do it's often more work because you have to do everything oh, twice oh, yeah. Well, but yeah sure. you know we're yeah. gluttons for work and writing because you write things over whenever you have to yeah at work mm -hmm. very often I disagree with my boss's decision and I think he's going to change his mind once he sees it done mm -hmm. so of course I save the other version I do it the other way so when he changes back, it's less work to go and you know put it back. <laughs> Once I made the mistake of throwing away the original design, Never. came back three weeks later. You had that first drawing you made. Oh, and I could have killed myself because I didn't have it. Yeah, that's why I keep cop keep copies of all my drafts. Yeah, at least on Just label oh. them with the date and just yeah. keep them all in a folder. Oh, I have version until one, my computer version crashes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's until my computer crashes and loses all my previous work. This is why you worship at the altar of Dropbox. <laughs> yes, I know. But fortunately, I can't always get them all up to Dropbox. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm having to rewrite everything, uh, which is fine. That's good. Now's your chance Hemingway. to do it again better. Yes, and that's I'm, I'm feeling Hemingway in that case. Because <laughs> he had that happen to him, but not a computer crash. All yeah. His manuscripts got lost on a train. Um, anyway, so last five minutes of recording, is there any other... Well, can you <laughs> kind of begin to wrap up what we've That's what I'm, as I'm asking. Any last thoughts? Any wrap-ups? Um, uh, well, you know, something that uh, Meredith said, uh, you know, that simple example of a, a dialogue tag at the very beginning, uh, you wanted to put the, uh, uh, the tag first. Um, but if it's not actually a dialogue tag, it, it, and I forget the sentence you said, but... Just made one up off yeah, the top of my uh, head. Uh, she glared at him. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking? <laughs> I mean, that's two distinct actions that happen in two distinct moments in time. So they're in the correct order. So the flow of the, uh, of the uh, narrative and dialogue is very important mm. to get the flow of the story right. So you'd be very correct in putting that dialogue tag first. And that's where you're the judge, you're the creator, mm -hmm. you're the one that decides which advice fits the artistic concept and uh, the narrative concept yeah, so maybe, trying to achieve. Maybe yes. my closing thoughts would be for the um, any advice, figure out what your goals are and 
who the person giving the, what is the source of the advice, what is their expertise, and what are their background. Mm-hmm. So you just remember that in the end, it's your your story, your writing, and you have to do what works for you and your style. And don't be offend, don't be afraid of saying no to people's advice, even if you love them very much. Exactly, and I'm going to counter Jen just a little bit with that, but Jen's 100 <laughs> percent correct. Don't be so afraid of advice. Don't ever be believing in yourself to the point that you will never take advice. There's advice out there, no matter how much... Okay, now here's the martial artist in me coming out. (laughs) A good, true martial artist, even if he claims to be of a position of a quote-unquote master, knows that he is always, forever... A student. Hmm. It is the one who is claims he is a master and has nothing else to learn that is truly the fool and the incompetent in his art. And on that note, I would like to. I do have a public service announcement at the end of this, but I want to say thank you for listening. Listen to us next week as we look into more of a writing field, and have a great week. Great week writing. Now for a public service announcement. STL Books is currently seeking an experienced publicity writer. Does not have to be an expert, but solid on social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Blogging and media placements preferred. Hourly pay based on experience level. Please contact Robin, R-O-B-I-N, at stlbooks.com with an email, interest, resume or bio, pay rate, and some samples. Thank you for listening. The Right Pack would like to thank STL Books for allowing us to record in their bookstore. STL Books and Gifts is St. Louis's newest independent bookstore with an emphasis on fine literature for adults and children and the most comprehensive selection of St. Louis books available anywhere. Visit them online at stlbooks.com or in person at 100 West Jefferson Avenue, Kirkwood, Missouri, 63122. Tune in next week as the Right Pack will conquer yet another pondering issue in the writing industry. Theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.